0: beautiful light-filled souls. This is Trisha Barker. Thank you so much for your attendance at the second annual online near-death experience summit. If you missed it this Sunday, there will be a replay link to purchase through the university of heaven. And I will leave that link below. Also, thank you to everyone who has purchased my book either through audible or ebook or paperback. It means so much to hear from readers and to hear your journey with spirituality and with healing and with some of the issues that my book brings up in education and in other walks of life. But thank you so much for listening to this podcast. This is a remake of some of my YouTube videos that I've uploaded to the podcast format because I know that many people do enjoy not using data and listening to podcasts. So it's great to connect with you and may you be blessed. Hello, beautiful, light-filled souls. My name is Tricia Barker, and I am here with a near-death experiencer, Jacob Cooper. He has had a childhood near-death experience, so I'm very excited to hear about this and about how it's informed his life. I can tell that it has just by his career choice, which is he has a master's of social work, and he's a Reiki master, and I think a lifelong interest in meditation from what I've I've heard and the, the joys of, of uh, really teaching this to others. So anyone who has a heart for helping others and for elevating their consciousness certainly is informed by a near-death experience. But I honestly don't know too much about your story. So I would love for you to just take over and set the scene in any way that you would like to set it and then just move into your near-death experience if you don't mind
1: absolutely well you know thank you so much Tricia, for having me on it's a complete honor to be here in 2018 discussing such a topic that really um has drawn a lot of attention and i think i'm incredibly grateful of all those who have come before me you know from raymond moody david bennett pmh atwater diane corkin IANS, you know and i could go all day and I'm so thankful for other colleagues, Peter Panagor, Yvonne Sneeden, and so many out there, it goes on and on, the list is Endless, who have paved the way and really made it easy for someone like myself for many others to come out and tell our story, you know, and so that, and I forgot to mention Eben Alexander and Betty Adie as well too, uh, but it really has allowed us an easy route to really providing Answers to life after death and the continuity after the physical a story began, you know in 1995 as you mentioned before I had a childhood NDE and so With that means that I have a lot of processing to do. I know um, Our colleague PMH Atwater discussed is that it takes about 20 to 40 years to really process and understand and conceptualize Um, the near-death experience, and hopefully through language and symbols, I could do my best to convey what occurred. Uh, But in 1995, I was five years old. At the time, I didn't know I had something, and there's many different pronunciations of it, but I'm from the East Coast, Northeast Coast, and I'll call it whooping cough. Many will call it whooping cough, and I was corrected by a couple of individuals at the INS Convention uh, who weren't so sure of what I was talking about. But I was five years old at the time, and I decided to go to a park with family friends of mine. I was in a Dodge Caravan in the car in the back seat, and I had an incredible aura of nausea all over me. And I was just feeling very nauseous, and I was coughing a lot. I had no idea what I had was so severe, nor did my parents. And so when I was in the car, I looked over, and in my corner of my eye, I saw an undeniable vortex. I was spinning uncontrollably. And, uh, you know, I know the whole vortex phenomenon has taken a life of its own. If you go to Sedona, you understand it as a city on a vortex. I know there was a popular book that said there are four major vortexes, but Sedona is just a vortex. But that was what I was facing at a very young age before I heard about Sedona and vortex phenomenon. It just almost, at the time, looking at it, it seemed like death was on its way. And this was an exit point for myself, it was quite familiar. And so looking at this vortex, I, as as a five-year-old self and looking, you know, at it through third person, third person ego, I was in denial and I suppressed it, much like I've been doing for a large part of my life in my near death experience. And I said, you know what, I'm gonna go to this park and run as fast as I could and go on top of the slide. Um, I have a lot of planetary forces in, this, in the sign of Aries, my moon and rising. So that's the planet of action and just acting before thinking and going to the thorn bush when someone tells you not to. So I decided to go um, up on the slide, and despite conventional wisdom and my higher self telling me that it's time to slow down and exude prudence, uh, I didn't listen to that higher guidance. It's a lesson in life, I'm sure. So as I'm climbing up the steps of the ladder, I tried to take a deep breath in and literally nothing came out. And that was one of the scariest moments of my life. And I immediately thought to myself that I'm really in trouble now. Um, To below me towards the slide, I saw my family friends that I went to the park with that day. And so I tried another deep breath in, and when I tried to te- take a deep breath in, nothing. And I tried to almost grab the individuals by me to just restore me or resuscitate me. And s- what I've learned since looking back at that is um, suffocating was one of the most isolative, low experiences you could have because the breath is often taken for granted, and we don't recognize how valuable the breath is. And I'll get to a little bit later of how that's brought me into breath work and mindfulness meditation. And so I recognized that I was in trouble, um, you know, that this was going to be difficult. Um, All of a sudden, same thing. I tried to take another deep breath in and nothing came out. And literally, if you are a homeowner, the greatest allegory analogy that I could provide is if you take... The breakers in a home and shut off one breaker at a time that's exactly what was transpiring in my body everything was just shutting down and i could feel all the parts uh just shutting down from the deprivation of oxygen that was occurring from suffocating and so the last part that i was looking at uh was my brain and i could literally at five years old i didn't have to go to harvard neurological programs i was able to understand every Different functionality and purpose of my brain.
0: Can I ask a quick question? Were you outside of your body, or were you still kind of inside of your body, watching all of this? This,
1: this was more third person outside. You know, okay. So this was an OBE, indeed, that I was having. Okay. You know, it says you know, my spirit was outside, looking downwards. Oh wow. Know. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, it's just in a very magnified you know, unlimited kind of place. And all of a sudden, when I was looking down, I understood every different functionality of the brain, frontal lobe, the cortex, dual abangada, all, you know, the whole nine yards. And it was just fascinating to see how each and every, you know, component interplay with one another. And then all of a sudden, I thought to myself, wow, you know, people study a lifetime to understand the brain with the brain. It makes no sense. That would like, you know, be taking my hand and try to understand itself. It didn't quite add up. And I understood the higher intelligence and the soul when it's out of our body, how, you know, and we're able to travel outside of our body. We really have unlimited understanding in what we could extract and know about who we are. Uh, I think a lot of the veil of forgetfulness is taken away and we're in a magnified state. But when I was in looking at my brain from the deprivation of oxygen, I looked down at it and all of a sudden, it literally just snapped in half, you know, almost like you take a power breaker in the house and yank it. And so my brain just, everything just deplugged. If you take a computer and just power down, that, that's what happened to my brain and my body. It was all totally shut down. And then what I saw was this unbelievable vortex that was sucking, you know, coming in at about a thousand miles an hour at some insane speed. And the vortex was going into my innermost being. The analogy that I could provide is if you go to Six Flags, let's say, and go on the fastest roller coaster, and the roller coaster is vibrating at some insane speed, and you can feel the vibration. And with the vibration, it's like everything is opening up, you know. That's what was happening, but that journey was the journey within. And I was going inward till no avail. And then I was met with a vista of darkness. And it's rare, you know, I know the media, there's a lot of media sensationalism around the light at the end of the tunnel, but more times than not, people don't have the light at the end of the tunnel, ironically, that's, you know, but I was able to experience that darkness, and all of a sudden, I entered into the light, and then that light just exploded.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting how, um, Things are very similar in many near-death experiences, but slightly different. And I, I do understand what you're talking about, about the darkness. I did my life review in a place that was somewhat dark, and then I entered heaven. So did you have to stay there for very long in that darkness? Did you feel at peace? Did you feel, though, that there was some threat of God connecting you to a greater consciousness?
1: What, what, that's a terrific question. What I felt was familiar, you know, I knew exactly what was going down. This wasn't a foreign place. This was in fact the most um, familiar place that I've been in. Um, what was unfamiliar was this lifetime, this body. That was, I was still acclimating to that. So the space was familiar. I kind of knew what was going down and I'll kind of get to why I feel evidentially I do understand that. Uh, but I felt scared in a sense that I didn't want to go. You know, most of us resist. Um, and so that I didn't want to leave my family behind. And that's what I was kind of resisting. And so when I was, you know, going down this tunnel, it wasn't for such a long period of time, but I was scared more so for going at the age of five. Um, then all of a sudden, that's when I was really entered, as I know it, the other side and everything opened up. Um, to When I was going higher and higher to no avail, I felt my soul literally vibrating at some insane speed and just, it had no limitation. I think, you know, there's neurotransmitters and biochemicals that we have to limit, you know, how good we could feel within this physical body. And unfortunately, plenty of people tried to do the cheap route to that, you know, through substances or whatever. And, you know, everyone's wired differently. There's a lot of cumulative disadvantages that post people, you know, to go that route, but that's kind of separate. But, when what I was experiencing was there was no limitation of how good I could possibly feel. The only limitation was my thoughts and my attitudes and my perceptions. So I was going at some insane speed and all of a sudden I looked over, you know, and then I saw a beautiful golden palace, which when I give NDE talks before I talk, sensitives are able to tap into that golden palace as well as vortex. And I didn't say a word to them about it before that, you know, so it, I do believe you carry that energy with you. But I was able to connect to this golden palace. I knew instantly that was the palace of the divine. It, It wasn't kind of God with a long beard as I knew it. It was just I am that I am. It was just all that is in the center, you know, that we're all trying to come as close to as possible within our ray of God. And I think within many lifetimes, we try to gravitate towards that golden light, so to speak.
0: Interesting. So some people just see a golden light, but you saw this golden palace. I saw a
1: structure of a palace, and it was too powerful, almost for my soul at five years old to to look at. It was too potent. Mystics, uh, you know, discussed this phenomenon where I lived in Israel for a year, and it was the city of Safad, which is the capital of uh, Kabbalistic writings and the Zohar. And after, his name is Rabbi Itzhak Laurier. Luria, I'm sorry, after he passed away, people would try to go to a synagogue and his light was so big they would literally die in the spot. Mm-hmm. So what I understand is there's such a mystical power, you know, that, that the divine has that it could be quite potent. And I don't believe you're given anything that you're not able to handle. But for me, I had to, you know, put my, you know, kind of, uh, I had to kind of, you know, hide a little bit from it because it was quite potent. All of a sudden, I looked in the distance, and it was a beautiful golden light that continued, and I heard a deep whisper of Christ, or Christos, and I just knew that was almost the voice on the other side. Bear in mind, I grew up Orthodox Jewish, and that wasn't something that was, although Jesus was Jewish, that wasn't something that was you know reared within my family or my school, and I knew instantly that that was the Father and almost the voice of the other side, and it was quite potent. I didn't quite see Christ. It was more deeper than that. It was a feeling, it was a knowing, it was an understanding, that that was the vibe on the other side and that was the realm that I was in.
0: So yeah, we do know things on that other side, almost like in layers or energy layers. And could you describe a little bit more about that knowing um, that you felt with Christ? You know, like what, how did that feel?
1: Well, you know, what I have to say is there's an immense amount of spiritual amnesia that we have (laughs) being in this body. And it almost felt like deja vu, like I've seen this before, I know this, I can't believe I forgot this. I felt quite ashamed, in fact, that I forgot the essence who I was. But to me, it was a very comforting, incredibly high vibrate, vibrational frequency that I was connected to. And I know words and symbols are our tests into ears, and I'm trying the best that I can. But imagine the greatest sensation that you could possibly have—a book coming out, or finish up your doctoral program, or making a speech in front of people—and magnify that, and multiply that by a million. So, it like, yes, even better than with chocolate cake with 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 the brain. Uh, but it was just the the feeling that I got was familiarity, comfort guidance reassurance just a knowing I am that I am and, and that's what I connected to and then I looked down and I looked down and this time I was back on my body so I was going in and out um I was on the other side and I was looking out of my body then all of a sudden I saw my two spiritual guides to my right and left in me and they were massive they were huge and they're just brilliant beacons of light and I knew instantaneously who they were and I felt
0: Did you know their names, or did you see them?
1: At, at the time, absolutely. Since then, there's been a veil of forgetfulness. I don't remember their names, but I knew, to me, spiritual guides are almost the closest aspects you have towards yourself. They're like a direct extension of yourself, and they're there with you when you chart out this lifetime, and I'm sure they may be there with you in other lifetimes. Some may disagree. Everyone has different opinions, but you know, they are the closest extension that you have to your core. You know, they're your biggest fans, your biggest support. But at the time when they were going down the slide with me and then I saw my body sitting down on the floor, I felt quite ashamed because, you know, I felt ashamed that I forgot. And I felt ashamed that much like I see we are today, I was on recording. I was on a Facebook Live all five years of my life. I often joke that when people have the life review, that it's not going to be a big deal because we're so used to just recording ourselves all the time that we're like, oh, I saw that on Facebook Live. That's no big deal. I'm not embarrassed. I could handle it. Uh, But, you know, that's kind of what I tuned into. And it was a male and female entity. And they were just beautiful. And then all of a sudden, I looked into my distance and there were about hundreds of thousands of childlike angels just floating down. And they were in a gold color ever so peacefully and they were they had wings and they were floating it's no different than you see in christian art you know top of the you know the the churches and stuff like that you know it comes from somewhere and they tap into someplace within the right brain through their higher guidance and that's what i was connecting to and they're right in front of me almost like bubbles and they weren't looking at me they were just looking at the distance but i could see that they were sending guidance and energy towards the planet and towards the situation, and it was fantastic. It was a sea of angels that I was connecting to, and it was so potent that I had to again back off. It's almost like you're a fish in a pond and you're just thrown in the water. You know, you need that incubation period to adjust. And I do believe when people do die, there is an acclimation period, you know, because you're wired spinning, spinning, spinning one way, and then all of a sudden you know, you're faced with the all that is It never was, and uh, that's indescribable. There's no limitations. There's only love and acceptance and support, and then all of a sudden, almost like, you know, if you're sitting at a beach of an ocean, and you look in the distance, and you have certain beacons of light come your way, that's what was happening to me, where suddenly my soul family, in a gentle whisper, was coming towards me, almost like, The good part of when Harry Potter is in Harry Potter and he sees the Death Eaters, but in a good way, you know, they were coming to me. Um, And instantaneously, I knew my soul family, my spiritual family, and I felt quite ashamed and embarrassed. You know, it's almost as if, as Neil Donald Walsh will say, the Queen of England has walked into your home and a house was just a mess, you know? So there was transparency. There was no politicizing. You couldn't fake whatever thought you had it would be right there. And whatever thought you've ever had was right there. So this was quite embarrassing. What was also as embarrassing was like, if you make a big promise to your friend, you say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go to graduate school and I'm going to get my PhD. And all of a sudden you're about to drop out on the first day of class. And that's kind of the way I felt. I felt like I was clinging to my mother's leg and not wanting to go to sleepaway camp. And, and looking at my guides and looking at my soul family and you know, all the angels and archangels in the distance that were around me, I was taking it all in. I was taking in the unconditional beauty of love, support, guidance, understanding, and just just feeling at home and not a thought, feeling at home. And all of a sudden, I was posed with a deep question. This was the most difficult question I've ever had in my lifetime. And the question from my spiritual family was, all right, you've seen the glory of God, you've seen this before, what are you going to do? are you going to stay or are you going to go? And that was the hardest question I've ever been faced with. And so I had a little bit of disrespect. My first question was, why me? Why did this happen to me? Why did I have this traumatic experience? Oh, then I was able to tune in. That's, that's a good great. question. Yeah. yeah that's it, great it, that you asked it, too. <laughs> it It was an Oprah Winfrey type question. You know, right. <laughs> it was one of those big aha moment questions. And so, you know, in that, Brought, brought me prepared to be a psychotherapist, you know, the value of understanding the big question, you know, oftentimes you got the big answer from it. Um, but it was just, I had, I had to really think very quickly, you know, in that moment to kind of felt that way. Um, and so I was shown in my own life review, I was able to look at my life review and kind of like pictures that you see, I was able to see every different picture in every moment an intensified experience, all the pain as well as joy that I experienced. And I was able to understand that in others too. And then I was able to look at previous carnations in my hall of records, but I was shown not every lifetime that I've lived because I've got a feeling that may be quite extensive, which isn't always a good thing. That means that I haven't necessarily learned and I need more than the average, but um, I was tuned into two lifetimes. One lifetime was my last lifetime, which psychics and intuitives have readily picked up on, which was a lifetime in which I had something called the hubris, where I had my ego that kind of got to my head, and it got too much, and I had a fall from grace. I hit the pavement, and it was just a huge embarrassment. And I was a religious leader, and I had students that I you know, was a part of, and I don't want to get into the specifics of of it uh for viewership's sake and people have questions i could possibly get into it for time's sake but i saw that i'd stuck my own life but i also saw not just those moments and the trauma that i created around me but i also saw the potential that change was inevitable and i didn't believe in that i didn't believe that indeed that there was the allegory of the light at the end of the tunnel and so i understood that and then there was another couple lifetimes that's, that I lived That's a powerful
0: in, lesson. And yeah. I guess what I'm curious about is how does that inform you now, <laughs> that particular life? Because we always seem, that seems to be like the launching point for us.
1: Well, in in, in one moment, I'll do my best to explain and tie that in, um, you know, because that ties in directly towards the future, which there is no time on the other side, but if we were to, for viewership's, you know, state to, to kind of explain it, um, I don't, you know, there is no time there. It's all one moment. Uh, But I was also shown a lifetime in Atlantis in which I understood the destruction of it and understood this destruction that when man tries to out God, God with his own infrastructure, it's destructive. When man works with God and it's higher thought and understanding, it's virtually unlimited. And that's a quote by David, by Adam the limb, by Shirley McLean. if any readers want to read that. Um, So what I understood was Atlantis was a city that basically destroyed itself, which tied into that lifetime of hubris, which is go forward, go far, but never forget where you do indeed come from and don't try to out God, God um, with our, with our own advancement. I think that's a message for right now where plenty of us are feeling that we're evolved and having shows and all this. But the biggest thing is to remember, you know, who we are, where we come from and where we go. And I think the world becomes a smaller place when we find that, the polarities that we all do. I mean, when we find the similarities, I'm sorry, the parallels and similarities, not polarities <laughs> that we all share. Polarities too. That's that's good for diversity.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, reaching out to others with respect, and you know this as a psychotherapist, like that's the best way to create community. You know, as a professor, I know that when I reach out to people with respect, then respect is given, and it's this cycle uh, that continues on. So, yeah, that's that's an important lesson. I think many. Um, spiritual people probably still struggle today with authenticity in putting forth a message, you know, that's just, you know, exactly right. But authenticity is even talked about to this degree where people aren't even authentic when they're talking about being authentic, you know, and I think that there's this deeper authenticity that should run through messages.
1: I think you strive towards authenticity, but it's always a choice. And the exciting part is that we're human. And that means that we make mistakes. And (laughs) the final part is that we could learn and there's opportunity. And that to me jazzes myself up in others, you know, that we could always evolve and change. Yes. Um, So, but to answer your question, I was, I then asked, well, what will be within this lifetime? And then, so I was shown a lot of images of presentations and sharing this message. It wasn't, you know, in a sense that I was some pompous guru in front of people like an show, or, I don't know, I don't want to get into specifics or anything like that. What I saw was that the message wasn't mine. It was ours, you know, and it was just one energy, you know, elevating. And I saw the eyes and smiles and the participants in the crowd. And it brought me to tears. And I, you know, on the other side, I do believe that you have emotions. You know, you carry yourself with you. You can't run from that. And, you know, it's just, you have just a lot more awareness. But I said, as beautiful as this is, you know, I cannot turn down this opportunity. And from that moment, I understood that my lifetime in which I took my own life, and I forgot that part of suffering is that it's an illusion. It tells you that you're trapped within this time frame. Science will say that every seven and a half years, we're proven to be biologically different. And so we're all intertwined with the the earth's rhythm and and, and neurologically we're wired to to one another. So I do believe um, that change is inevitable. And I think if one thing that I could deliver, one lesson that I can understand from my near-death experience, amongst many others, and hopefully we can get into some of those lessons, is to never lose sight on... Hope and the understanding that change is inevitable. And from putting their head forward, much like the buffalo does in the wintertime when he pushes the snow forward to the promise of spring, you have to understand that part of resiliency is that you see the light at the end of the tunnel and you understand that you trust it no matter what, all is well. And all will work out in the end.
0: That's a good point. I'd like to add, I don't know if you have this experience, but I would like to add that God sometimes comes at the last moment, you know, when we start out on a path and we're really pushing towards something. And we are like that buffalo, as you described, just going and going. You think it's never going to break. And then at the last minute, you know, miracles arrive and, and things work out yeah. the way that they should. It, it's it's amazing, you know, that you have to start out with hope and faith, though, and continue or maybe the journey just wouldn't be as exciting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I I see it as the um, polarity phenomenon. In order to understand extreme heat, you must understand extreme cold. And, uh, you know, we need these kind of shakeup periods, you know, like a near-death experience, out-of-body experience, spiritual transform, whatever it may be, to change our trajectory. Um, But I do believe in order for us to move forward, those are necessary, because we're quite complacent, lazy beings in general without that kind of nudge or that jolt, we're not going to change. We only change if we're wanting something, which is based off of discomfort. And so if anything, the near-death experience, the one tie that I find is it all, you can never enter the world the same way. You may not recognize that, but those around you probably would be better able to understand that. Yeah.
0: So was that your exit point You know,
1: out of the near-death experience you kind of chose at that
0: moment, or did your experience continue on for a bit?
1: Well, I don't want to bore the listeners with the brevity of it. My talks average about an hour and a half. But <laughs> I, I, I then, after that moment, after I decided that I would devote a life towards sharing this message, and after I share my near-death experience I discussed that it, It's our message, um, everything kind of faded and just kind of sucked back into that vortex energy. Um, and so I was left with one last question. And my guides were right next to me and I said, how do I know that this will happen? I don't trust that this life is going to lead up to this. How do I know that, you know, this isn't going to be something worthwhile of my time? And I was left with a Louise Hay statement. I never read Louise Hay at five years old. Um, But the statement was, watch your thoughts because your thoughts are your highways and your thoughts are, you know the more supportive and alignment your thoughts are with your true and higher self, the easier the road is to follow, and the more swayed you are, the more that you're going to be further away from your own life path, which you set off before this lifetime, you know, so it's okay to be flexible and change, but your thoughts are your greatest ally or self-destructive element that you can have. I never forgot that. And then all of a sudden, everyone left me and it was back in my body in the hospital. And I saw my mother was sobbing and very upset. And I was expecting Joan Rivers and Melissa Rivers to be interviewing me on the red carpet. <laughs> and we had the boy who turned down heaven and the boy who turned down the other side to come back to Winthrop Hospital here in Long Island. But you know what? That wasn't the case. When I woke up, doctor was chasing me around the room with a shot and trying to put all kinds of pills my mother told me that i kicked the doctor out of anger and you know because it was just almost like it was just so traumatic to come back to uh, such a polarity from being on the other side and then coming back to a uh, lot of all places in the hospital it was difficult
0: yeah was and then you are then you were actually five so you know at that time you probably had different types of reactions. you know. As an adult having a near-death experience, I could process it differently, but I still felt different. And so you had only had a few years on this life Mm -hmm. in that lifetime, and then you came back to it. Could you tell a difference in who you were before and after
1: that? Well, absolutely. Plenty of people say, who were you? Were you that five-year-old? Or were you this sage or evolved soul or unevolved soul or whatever? who, who were you? And, you know, what I have to say is this lifetime is all about adjustment. You know, we say we don't come into our own tool X amount of time, you know, so we learn to use our instrument, our body, you know, within X amount of years and we're able to develop speech and thought patterns, but the observer, you know, I think you, that's always there, you know, that, that that part that's kind of witnessing the higher self is always there. I just think all kind of integrates and morphs into one. And that may take some time with the right practice. Some people, you know, they have too much human. Some people have too much spirit, you know. So I think it's combining the two uh, to create a unison, you know, form. It's kind of like a guitar player just getting used to the guitar and the pitch and sound. And, you know, every day is an opportunity to have a different pitch. And I'll get into why I think, you know, tools for that in, in, in a way, but, you know, I did wasn't, the you, sorry,
0: yeah. I just want to ask a quick question, did you pray more, or did you connect more with the other side,
1: and your guides, and your angels immediately as a kid, or did you, well, it's, it's a very interesting question, Tricia, what transpired was, as I said, for my traumatic brain injury, you know, and my brain literally snapping in half, but the doctors weren't able to see anything, but I knew that it was, and I was clinically not breathing, and pretty much dead. I didn't have a pulse or anything, and so I, my brain was different, differently wired. It was very different. You know, from that point forward, I was kind of like um, a George Anderson, Teresa Caputo. At five years old, I was tuning into the animal spirit, you know, realm. I was t- I was. T- I was uh, tapping into deceased loved ones on their side, my soul family, loved ones around my classmates. So what was happening was I was on that side more so than this side, which is kind of scary. And one day, because daily I was able to go into the under the other side of the tunnel because I remembered how to do that and I was there. And from as above so below, we have government here on this plane and I think on the other side, that's the case, too, where there are higher governing forces, you know, that allow or disallow you to access energy and access portals. So when, I, when my soul tried to enter the other side, one day there were two armed guards and they blocked me from entering. And I was put back. And then I tried again with my Aries Ram Moon and everything. Boom, you know, I'm behind. I said, all right, you know what? It's time to, to be in this body. It's time to be in this lifetime. So I the veil of forgetfulness was a little bit stronger. In in order for me to survive and be human, I had to learn how, what that was like again. Um, and so I had to learn how to focus. I had to learn how to think. I had to learn how to talk. I had a lot of speech impediments. I was on psychiatric medication as a young kid. I was seeing therapists as a young kid. So I had to do a lot of self-work to get everything it, in harmony and I'm still not that guy yet, yeah.
0: And and I had a question for you because you mentioned before we started taping that it was actually therapy that allowed you to process more of the near-death experience and integrate it and is that accurate? Did you start
1: looking at the near-death experience in therapy? From my near-death experience, I kind of had you know, Sigmund Freud talks about third-person ego, and so from the near-death experience and just being able to be hovering over my body, looking down at it, and seeing everything in a magnified manner, I was able to connect to that observer mode and separate myself a lot between my thoughts, between the outside world. I was able to live a life inside out from the young age versus outside in. That makes sense. Uh, so I was really able to tune inward a lot easier. And that has all driven me, you know, as a young kid to understand myself. You know thyself, you know others. And that's my drive as a psychotherapist, to separate yourself and what's in front of you and to get into that observer mode, the seat of the soul, as Gary Zucayot uh, discusses in a way. Um, that to me is you know something that i fostered very young and so i was always able to process and i was always able to step back and extract myself from the situation and i think seeing a, ther- a therapist from a young age allowed myself to develop a greater gap between the stimuli and my response it sounds Not like a third person ego Sounds like you're
0: able to separate feelings from facts. You know, that people are very driven by what they feel a lot of times without being able to look at the facts of a situation or or anything really that they're observing.
1: You know, and I was able to integrate the art of beating to my own drum from my Mm -hmm. near-death experience. I think a lot of people who are disconnected um, follow societal ways and they're not truly connected. I think those that are tuned in they're able to separate themselves a lot from their outside world um, in a way um,
0: so what are some examples in childhood where you're somewhat different from a lot of kids
1: well i mean i think from a young age seeing angels uh, you know post NDE, yeah. and almost feeling like my those couple of months after that was an NDE where i was tuning into all that on a regular basis was different having premonitions knowing who would come in the door what would happen kind of like click 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 you know wow. you know Intuitive information. I wish it happened earlier because I wouldn't have to go to grad school. I could, you know, but you have to be careful for what you wish for. It is indeed a non-refundable gift and it's not something you could shut off. So since then, yes, indeed, you know, I am intuitive like us all, but I don't, they don't come to me at all times. They come to me at the hour of the wolf at three o'clock in the morning. Sometimes, you know, when your brain is, you know, you know, relaxed in those deeper, you know, states. Um, but, you know, not regularly, um, but people give me a lot more credit than I do for my intuitive abilities. I'm sure that's, that's there. Um, but I was indeed different. I was left with this trauma, and I was forced to integrate and suppress the trauma as a survival skill in order to fit in. Um, I, I, we were talking about this just now. When you hit that kind of abyss, and sometimes, you know, the divine sends its angels and messengers um, I think that happened to me when I was about 18 or 19 years old. I got into some kind of spat with my parents. Most spats are about nothing. Whose turn is it to take out the trash? Whatever. But this was serious, and I don't want to get into the details because I love my mother and father, and they would kill me if I discuss this. Don't don't call CPS now. But yeah, that was that wasn't literal. But um, you know, we got into some spat, and I decided to take a yoga, you know, seminar that day. And I was sitting just on the floor, just minding my own business. I was about 18 or 19 years old. And a woman came up to me, and she goes, you know, you have a crowd behind you. I go, what in God's name are you talking about? I'm in community college. I'm taking remedial courses. I'm not feeling too much of myself at the time. She goes, no, you, you do know you have a crowd behind you. I go, what do you mean? She goes, you're going to be a healer one day. I see you speaking in front of people. And then I go, oh, crap. And then I, it all hit me. All that what I suppressed hit me. And then after that, I was on a thirst and a quest to really allow myself to re-remember my own experience because to me, it was nothing. Um, But then I read Betty 80s, Embraced by the Light, which was gifted to me by someone, and I recognized that, wow, what I had was diagnosed, you know, there was a diagnosis for it, which Moody and, you know, I think a couple before him, you know, provided that this was a near-death experience. I just thought it was kind of cool not that I forgot it, but I just kind of put in the background, like, ah, eh, it, was, it was a cool experience, but recognizing that, wow, indeed, from this and re-remembering that from this, that could help out lives and that could be information that's important, I couldn't make this lifetime about myself. It had to be about the message and that I've been on a quest since that moment in time.
0: So what do you think that humanity at this time needs the most when it comes to healing? So if you're looking out at, you know, this crowd of people, what are you sensing and what are you getting, you know, the undercurrents that are running through society that most need to be healed?
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a very deep question. <laughs> um, what, what I have to say is, and I think the near death experience helps us out. You know, I think there is indeed one light. And I think sometimes with that light, it's almost like a prism, and there's many different angles. And so we take an over identification of who we are and what we're born into. I think that has its value ethnic identity, religious identity, community identity has its value but to remember, remember individual and collective and what that means. And so I think finding ways to evolve your practice, because religion has its time and place, and I think it's not, it's not my place to dismiss it, um, but I think what's important is to, yes, have your practice, but find parallels with yourself and your neighbor and understand that from diversity comes unity, right? Right. You know, if we're all the same, the test is going to be to us. And so I think that's the biggest message is to find parallels between yourself and another, and the world becomes a smaller place. And sometimes we have to get rid of the narrative that we've been handed down. You're this, you're that, that person's that, you're on this team, you're on that team, us versus them kind of game. So I think it's taking that old soul mantra of unification, this whole Aquarian age, phenomenon of technology, bringing us closer together, and just having one connection to another. How I know this is evidentially, if you don't mind me sharing, I've read about oneness for a long time, you know, and my aunt was a spiritual mentor of mine. Hopefully, if we could bring her up, I would like to share one story that she said. So sometimes it was my train of thought, but one day when I was about no, I would say 19 or 20 years old, almost like a movie in the 90s, I woke up and literally here I am again, I'm out, I'm out of my body. And so of people would rush themselves to the psychiatric ward and you know, go on medication. But I had an inner knowing that this was a kundalini crazy experience and I could feel all of my energy centers, my third eye. Everything was just opening up and I was literally out of my body. And I was walking and I was one with the all. All of a sudden, in September, the same month that I had my near-death experience, almost 15 years later, I was in a synagogue in the high holidays, a place where I normally don't feel so comfortable in. But, you know, it's just getting rid of that narrative mode and into that experience mode. And so I was able to, in that moment, I connected to my spiritual totem, and I was literally able to fly around the room as crazy as that sound. My energies were going nuts. But then I saw a thread that connected each an individual member to one another. But I saw that through narratives and I was able to read thoughts and energy that there was a narratives and a veil of forgetfulness through egocentric thought that separated and everyone had their blinders on. And that, by the way, isn't just a male principle, you know, females, you know, had their blinders on too, you know, you know. I know because us guys the world could be imploding in flames and we just kind of focus on tractor trailer and stuff like that but you know i saw that one connection and ever since that point it wasn't intellectual it was evidential and i understood that we are all indeed one there's no yes. you know, and i was cracking up at the irony of how i too forgot about that and how ironic i saw myself as an individual you know yes it's not about that individual collective dynamic,
0: you know. We would be so much kinder and less judgmental if we looked at the world like that, and that would just erase a lot more problems. It's yeah. it's interesting that these experiences can continue to happen for us, you know, as you were talking about feeling that oneness later. Believe it or not, and I won't get into this too much, but... of the joys of doing these interviews is when people describe their experiences to me if i go into meditation after doing an interview i sometimes relive part of their experience or it's kind of transferred to me or downloaded to me in some way and it's just so beautiful it just allows me you know to flow into those spaces so i really do kind of honor you and everyone who's you know interviewed with me before because if you're energetically sensitive to these kind of things and it's just it's a beautiful experience and yes you don't sound crazy to me at all you know the flying around the room and all that I, right right I, uh, I, yeah i yeah i do that
1: <laughs> I, I send energy that you have the second half of the experience not the first <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah not the physical <laughs> experience because that oh, no <laughs> that was something that i do indeed live with today yeah, you know,
0: the physical trauma is tough. And that's the other part of near-death experiences is, is the spiritual part is so healing and beautiful and amazing. But yeah, that we do suffer from that physical trauma because it's remembered. And for years after my near-death experience, but when I heard a siren or a crash or, you know, things like that, it did induce some PTSD. I don't know if you dealt well, with some.
1: Un, un, undeniably. And I still struggle with it, you know, but every day is a new path towards healing what's allowed me to survive within this lifetime is i think us into years we're kind of like those kids who go to sleepaway camp and we're homesick because we're brought to the other side and plenty of us feel more comfortable there than here and all of a sudden we're forced back to be in this game and everyone's just kind of doing their thing like nothing's changed and we are radically different there's no doubt about it and If we're able to see that in ourselves, we know it. It's almost like to see changing yourself is like feeling that you're on an airplane and recognizing how fast you're going. So if you're able to see that, you know you've shifted. Uh, But a survival skill that I've used since a young age is understanding the power of the breath. How, as my mentor and teacher says, Richard Scholler says, is a psychic medium, through the breath, we inspire. The inhalation, we inspire. And through the exhale, we experience so it's an elevation and then we're able to settle into that elevation and so throughout my lifetime i was quite homesick and i any everything paled in comparison to what i had you know as many end years now our colleague peter Panagor talks about that extensively and how difficult that is so to me a survival skill was breathing and finding ways to go within and recognizing that's all that i needed and having An existential psychology that the world can implode in flames, but as long as I'm able to tune within, I'm able to regulate myself and I'm able to, to control what I want to see and experience at any given moment in time, despite what's in front of me, you know, and that indeed is a commonality of a lot of people who've experienced trauma. I know I mentioned Viktor Frankl, he was I believe a psychiatrist who wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning and he was in the concentration camps but he brought forward existential psychology and the phenomenon of the inside out perspective where you're able to regulate yourself, your own connection to some say spirit, some say source, whatever it may be, the divine spark, you know, and you're able to go within despite whatever's in front of you Again, into that eye of the hurricane, despite the craziness, uh, you know, inside of you.
0: Yes. So you mentioned before we started filming too that you do use meditation in your practice with others.
1: Well, absolutely. I work, you know, in a in a dual mental health and substance use clinic on a full time basis as a licensed social worker, and I run a weekly mindfulness, you know, based stress reduction meditation group, which I do give um, Dr. John kabat Sin a lot of credit to my journey with meditation obviously you know discuss what's self-made uh, but one day you know god sends his angels to me and one day i was 19 years old and there's this individual at my jewish we we're celebrating passover and this individual is at my passover table and he had you know like a lakers championship going on and chicago bulls championship going on, and i go who are you and he said you ever hear of michael jordan Yes, absolutely. ever here, of Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, Jackson, I go undeniably so. He goes, "Well, I'm a consultant. I, you know, provide mindfulness meditation workshops for Phil Jackson's basketball team, and he was a family friend of ours. And so he wrote a book called The Mindful Athlete. His name is George Mumford, good friend of mine. Um, but since that point, I you know, I was following his videos and I followed. Individuals like Dr. John Kapitsin, Thich Nhat Hanh. But I think the greatest element that I learned about it was the value that it has on performance and finding ways for you to maximize your skill set. He worked with athletes in a way to develop the concept of team. I think, you know, when the cube blocked in, as Dan Mailman said, you're putting, you know, the beaver dam that's blocking the river from going by. You know, so athletes, performers, singers, artists, we're all able to get into that flow and zone. And when you're getting too caught up in your own ego or superstar ego um, or thoughts or concept of self, you know, you lose it. And so the mantra that they had was kind of like the strength of the pack is in the wolf and the strength of the wolf is in the pack. You know that was said in the Jungle Book, which kind of killed that quote, but you know, <laughs> I don't know. it is beautiful because the more that you're able to see yourself individual and collective, and mindfulness, and awareness through yourself and your connection to the outer world, that's when everything just flows and everything just goes. And that's why those teams probably were able to maximize their capabilities. Now. For myself, as an athlete and as a student, I was able to utilize this, do intense yoga training, and I was certified, you know, license, I'm sorry, I'm a Reiki master and trainer in Reiki for many years, and I understood the value that. There's many paths up the mountain. At the end of the day, there's one APAC. So, but understanding the value of self-work, self-mastery is, is significant. But more importantly, what I try to provide within the groups and seminars that I run within colleges or wherever I'm called to do, is to maximize yourself, maximize your toolbox, maximize what's there. And I think mindfulness is one of the ultimate tools for performance. I really oh,
0: yeah. do. Um, I, I do too. You know, I've introduced it to students since, well, since I taught in junior highs, I, I worked with students who had uh, emotional difficulties and they were a reading group and they benefited the most from mindfulness training, that group. You know, that they finally were able to read a story they were so agitated their ner- nervous systems were you know so traumatized but after a bit of meditation they changed you know it was it was really quite amazing and and even at the college level everyone's so overstimulated with technology and so forth that they benefit greatly from even just
1: an introduction
0: to meditation so i'm sure you see those benefits in those well, you work with
1: absolutely when i work in multiple colleges in the tri-state area the one part that I tune into is one could have a very high IQ, right? But their, you know, their emotional intelligence, the AI, social intelligence is not there. I think we're given a roadmap of how to think. We're not given a blueprint of how to use the brain, how to use our body, how to maximize it. And meditation is one of those tools. You know, is one of those batons that you could take and utilize with you, whether that's through Zazen or through regular waking state. Um, and I think it ties into my near-death experience as once my brain got down, that's when everything opened up. So from, a, from that, I understand the brain is just merely a filter between the two realms. Once it shut down, everything opened up. So all the brain to me is just a filter. So if that's the case, if we change a filter in a fish pond, wouldn't think that you would work on, you know, the brain as an ultimate factor. <laughs> um, you change parts of a car, you know, so that's the way that I understand it. And I know for you, correct me if I'm wrong. You work in creative kind of writing and English, you know, kind of stuff. So to me, my teacher and mentor discusses that the brain is kind of like a song. You know, George Mumford said this, where the left brain is the lyrics and the right brain is the harmony. And once the two are integrated together, you're unstoppable. And you know, your creativity, your analytics are all working in harmony. I think sadly what happens, we get too overheated in one area, and that limits our capabilities as students, as workers ourselves to feel flow and allow ourselves to kind of have that flowing sound. So meditation works directly with self-regulation of the brain and just allowing our brain to depress and getting into the deeper inner mind, you know, so that creativity memory is you know and our ability to regulate life's trials and tribulations are that much stronger sadly there's a lot of people who develop a lot of neurological cumulative disadvantages where they're in constant fight or flight you know from the world view growing up in trauma i think if anyone interested in this phenomenon, I highly suggest reading. Um, his, name, his name is Dr. Perry. He wrote the book, I think the boy who was raised as a dog. He kind of is a psychiatrist who talks about trauma and its impact on the brain and how society, we just pluck in kids into a school and say, all right, you know, everyone's on an equal playing field. Not true. Not true. Not true at all. You know, it's from trauma. A lot of people are in their frontal, you know, brain and their decision making you know, isn't as, you know, strong as as advantageous so as the next one. So to me, this is reversible. And if you're interested in that, I highly suggest, forget his name, Dr. Daniel A. Min, reading one of his books, he talks about, you know, reversing, you know, brain trauma through football players and substance use. So meditation is one of those ways to really create a healthy brain in addition to exercise eating regimens being around positive support systems because indeed you know you could walk into a place like sedona and electromagnetic waves from the brain is the data and it's more into those deeper brainwave states um one of those theta and beta you know states um so um you're able to feel that you
0: know? yeah that's that's wonderful advice i do believe that trauma can be healed and I do think that it's a long journey for many but I think it's something that we should address in schools and at the college level because even at the college level people are not at a level playing field that was part of my story as I realized everything that I'd survived and I thought okay now I'm going off to college I can get it all together and I could succeed and I just fell apart you know, until the near-death experience. And that, um, I think, is so common for so many students that I see, that college should raise that emotional intelligence and it should give healing tools. I think that's going to be a movement. I'm certainly going to participate in it in all the ways that I can. But
1: Uh, Undeniably, you walk into a supermarket. What's next to you is, is a mindfulness meditation magazine. That was never the case back in the, you know, you maybe had one who would talk about it. He was a coup. He or she was a coup. Now forget about it. You know, if you're not on this, you're not Hollywood, you know, it's like, you know, you're not in with the game. So, and even in psychotherapy, you know, as a therapist, it's directly tied into, um, dialectical behavioral therapy. You know, if anyone's interested in looking a little bit on that in radical acceptance, you know, so it's very hard to not bring this forward into practice, you know, because clients know about this stuff and oh, yeah. they, want, they want tools. If anything that I find is the younger generation, you know, cause they're kind of tied into computers and everyone else doing something for themselves. The the way that they're wired is they want tools, they want skills. And yeah. so we're, we're not able to really um, join with the times if we don't form an understanding or master some of those available skills uh, yeah. to give to that next generation. <laughs>
0: so I have a Quick aside, you said you had a story about your aunt. I I do want you to circle back to that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, this is one of the most validating. It gives me chills every time that I talk about it. You know, I mentioned the soul family, and to me, you know, to clarify, the soul family are those that you're with throughout many lifetimes. They wear many different hats and there are many different roles, but they're a similar style and almost ray of the divine that you are with. And I think that this lifetime isn't an individual message as much as it is a collective. It's just raising the collective energy that you are a part of. My aunt was on morphine. She was dying at the time. uh, You know, dialysis failure and stuff like that. So she was my spiritual mentor from a very young age. You know, I do believe it was Charter that she was preparing me for doing this kind of stuff. And I give her all the credit in the world for being in this chair right now talking to you. Uh, but before she died, she said, you know, you ever look at a family picture? I go, yeah, yeah. I mean, what's the big deal? You're dying here. Why tell telling me this? Uh, she said, you know, if you look at that family picture, if you look at the physical body, you'll see differences. Granted, I want you to use your spiritual eye and look at the eyes. And look not at, at the eyes, kind of like a model does. A model looks through the lens. You know, they don't look at it. So... I want you to look through the eyes and connect to what you see? And, you know, I felt pretty cool. And that was kind of it. And then I tried to connect to her through, you know, a medium. I know we all get read here and there, no matter how spiritual evolved, you know, we need someone giving us some validation, you know, that we're not crazy for tuning into at three o'clock in the morning or whenever we do tune in. Um, and so she said, I'm connecting to her. And, why, why is she show me the word picture? What does that mean? And I go, oh my God, you know, that if that's not validation. I don't know what is. It was the picture, the family picture, and the collective soul energy of the, of the soul family that is indeed ancient. And, you know, so that was just, I, you know, that was all the validation that I needed. Oh, that's um, that beautiful. He was, hey. That's beautiful. Yeah, so, and to me, you know, people, discuss differences in their own near-death experiences. And I have to say, through understanding that yes indeed, there's, you know, this isn't the end, but there's more, you know, waiting. But mindfulness meditation and self-work is your ultimate bliss, you know, because you could have someone with all the geological contours and greatest home, but on the inside it feels empty. So, you know, in a way, why is that going to be different when you do cross over? You don't run from that person then you could have the next person who is pushing the shopping carts and nothing, nothing wrong with that. But that person has a smile on his face and that person understands the value of what a smile can do to someone's day. And that person doesn't say that I'm not a saint and there's not an opportunity to see a value in myself. Um, And so that's the work that I'm very driven to do is to evolve myself and others so that this moment is elevated. And so that from this moment, you know, your forever, your eternity, you know, is what you'd like it to be. It is indeed a masterpiece of what you're trying to be. And mm-hmm. so Beautiful. that's what I try to do.
0: And for my final
1: question, I'll let you
0: pick for, from a few <laughs> um, if you want. But I, since I have this summit that is going on this Saturday, I'm getting a lot of questions from different viewers. And I thought I'd just throw a couple at you and let you pick one. But one thing that, People often ask, and it's so easy for us as near death experiencers to believe in the signs, you know, from the other side through mediumship or through talking with angels or believe deeply in God's love for us and how to shift into that consciousness. But it's harder for us, I think, to take the perspective of someone who just can barely believe, you know, who is just listening to our words and going, okay, I'm trying, you know, and they aren't having spiritual experiences what do you say to someone who's really struggling and wanting to have spiritual experiences
1: you ever go to sedona and crave san diego <laughs> yeah. you know so what i say is it's our nature to always try to find that which what we don't have right you know i think the biggest piece that i could preach to myself and to ears those who haven't had it is to is to honor where you are if that makes sense and to just tune into where you are because you could always crave that which you know which you didn't have trust me i'll send ears will say you don't want that i know plenty of people in my talks say how do i have a near death experience i go child please you don't want one. <laughs> you know you really it's not something that you that was the, the skit and you could attest to this But also, I'm jealous. I, in a way, am jealous of those who haven't had one. Because I don't know what it's like in this lifetime to not have one. And it was very hard to grow up with that. It was very hard to grow up that trauma, but also it was very hard to be different. And that's not the road that I want to take, but I know that's karmically the road that that it's appropriate. And I'm sure you could attest to it but also understanding that they have a lot more potential than us. I mean, for us, it's very easy to do it. We're in the light. I always say faith is, you know, as I say, walking through the valley of the shadows of death, but still pushing forward. You know, so for them, with a little bit more spiritual amnesia. You know, it, it, and that's what they have, their capacity to grow and evolve is, to me, stronger because it's not broadcasted in front of them. And if they're still doing this, those are the people that I look up to. It's, it's easy for us to do our thing. You know, we had God and Jesus and angels, you know, what more do we want just kind of thrown into our faces? So, you know, it, it, it has its pros and cons, but I, I validate those who are interested in students and researchers of this matter who haven't had it. Uh, to me, they're the ones who have the most faith and the most strength, and um, I, mm-hmm. I validate the, the other side of the coin.
0: Yeah, and maybe know,
1: I'll send the to ears too. And,
0: you know, one thing that comes to mind when I think about those who are struggling with that, I think the mindfulness that you talk about and the slowing down and the paying attention to these light shifts of energy and these smaller things, like I believe intuition is inside of everyone and they classify it as something different, kind of like how we classified the near-death experiences oh, a cool experience. I think people are walking around with a lot of intuition and they're not even classifying it as intuition. So sometimes... Yeah taking a course or taking, you know, something that just helps them differentiate between these moments. And they're like, Oh, I do have that ability. You know, I do have some of that. So it may just be a lack of exposure, but I, I don't know exactly what to say to people sometimes who struggle with a belief in God because it's not even belief. I think it's Peter Pettigore who talks about that. It's just knowing, you know, like, you know, I just know God, you <laughs> know, like well, when you.
1: We've, we've had that cause you know, we've experienced it in a very deep level. I think they know it too. I just think within this body some, you know, sometimes at different levels, you're not m- meant to hear certain things. I, I do believe everything is charted, you know, but understanding, you know, that we entrust the value that indeed that there is life after this physical death you know and that to find ways to formulate radical acceptance where you are and from that you'll be able to evolve you know Linehan talks about this where in order for someone to get out of quicksand you first have to recognize that you're in it right and stop the struggle you know people to get out of suffering you have to honor and validate where you are and then if you're not comfortable formulating plan but that's all based on awareness and acceptance. And I think if people to do that, they go further. But I think if anyone were to try to understand us, the movie that I want people to watch, uh, I request—not want—you know—because we have free will—is uh, Hook with Robin oh, yeah. Williams. Yes. I don't know if anyone's seen that, but if that is not an allegory for an NDE, I, you know, I don't know what it is because in the movie, Robin was just a regular working man, and he just had shakeups to kind of remind him that ooh you know, what I'm going through, what I'm experiencing is not all that is. And he literally had to go over to Neverland and he experienced himself in a disencumbered, lib, you know, liberated state where literally he could fly, he could soar, he could go wherever. Eventually after he, you know, adjusted and re-remembered who he was. And I do believe as ears that's our message is to never forget that you could fly. Never forget where you come from and just walk forward and never forget where you came from and where you're going to, and that each step is a building block to that. Mm-hmm. And so we'll allow others to understand that, that we can all fly if need be. You know, we all <laughs> have that in us. Well, some, some, some do it through, um, they, 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 they they attune to the silver cord, and you can have that if you do want to, and there are classes and programs of that, but you know, my, my job in this lifetime is to be in the body. That's what I try to do. And, and if those energetic experiences happen, You know, to me, it's much like the lobster shelling its own shell and just morphing into something new. And eventually you can't operate the same vibratory frequencies in shape. (laughs) You don't change.
0: Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for this interview. I've totally enjoyed it. And I've loved hearing your experiences. I do want to end with a note to listeners to please check out the summit, which is occurring this Saturday. It's Um, on June 16th all day if you can't be there that day you can certainly watch it on the replay link I'll email that to everyone who purchases a ticket but I have 11 different speakers who are really like some of the questions I asked Jake Mm -hmm. just looking at ways to help people heal and to help people evolve and to help people really just embody more of that light from the other side and create more heaven on earth because I think that is the movement that we're going toward. But please check out that link below and join us if you can. And Jake, thank you so much for being on my show.
1: Thank you. An honor. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Bye
0: now.